Hello and welcome to the Inspired Women, Inspire Women podcast. This is your host, Sila Simmons. I am a leadership and organizational development consultant, and this podcast is dedicated to all of the amazing women who make it their mission to live their best lives, both personally and professionally, and by doing that, they inspire the rest of us to do the same. In this podcast, you will hear from women from all backgrounds and walks of life, and each of these stories is rooted in the spirit of sisterhood. You will hear from women who've won and lost, who've overcome, who've persisted and risen to the challenge. If you want to learn more about me, please visit my webpage at www.celasimmons.com. That is www.celasimmons.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me for the third episode of the Inspired Women, Inspire Women podcast. Today, I'm so excited to highlight Joanna Sweat. She's a woman who's a former Marine. She's a mom. She's a wife. She's an advocate and an activist who tirelessly works for veterans' interests. And I have to be honest with you, I had a hard time coming up with a clear title for this particular episode. If those of you who are familiar with this podcast know that each episode has some catchy little title that encapsulates the overall conversation that I have in every episode. But I had a hard time doing that with this particular one. I couldn't find the right words to just neatly categorize the conversation that I had. And I think that if you hear a little bit more about Joanna, you will understand why. Hi, I'm Joanna Sweat, and um, I'm a veteran of the United States Marine Corps, and I uh, operate a, a nonprofit that assists veterans in the community. I do a lot of advocacy as it relates to veterans, and um, just overall, I'm interested in improving the human connection experience um, and making our world a better place. As you listen to this episode, you will hear Joanna talk about growing up as the daughter of an interracial marriage between her dad, who's an African-American and an Air Force veteran, and her mom who immigrated to the U.S. in the 70s from Korea. You will hear her talk about her experiences as a teenage mother, You will hear her talk about joining the Marine Corps and her experiences as a Marine, the good and the bad, including being sexually assaulted twice during her time in service. You will hear her talk about transitioning back into civilian life and almost losing her hand while working at a deli at a grocery store. And you will also hear her talk about finding her voice as an advocate and the work that she does now in helping to connect veterans with the greater community within Arizona. So anyway, as I mentioned, I had a little bit of a difficult time coming up with the right title, and I eventually settled on this title that you see here, Joanna Transforms Again and Again, because as I listened to her story, and as I listened to her tell it, I kept hearing the theme of transitioning and transformation. And then I got to thinking about transformation and realized that we often see it as a drastic and one-time event. But why can't transformation be gradual and consistent? You know, like the popular metaphor that we use, you know, the imagery of that caterpillar that transforms into a butterfly. 
Why can't the butterfly keep evolving once she gets her beautiful wings? Why can't her wings get bolder and stronger and more beautiful? And see, this is what I think of when I listen to Joanna's story. I see the image of a beautiful butterfly who uses her wings to fly, and she finds new ways to continue to grow and be bold and to tell her truth and find her voice while helping others find theirs, all the while continuing to morph as her wings keep getting better and stronger and bolder and more beautiful. So welcome and listen in. First, I should start by saying I'm actually a military brat. My father served in the Air Force. Although he retired when I was quite young, we did continue to travel a lot under the umbrella that he took a civil service job, which means that basically he continued to do the job he did in the military, but as a GS employee. Uh, My father is African-American, born in 1941. He married my mom. She's Korean. Um, she's an immigrant that came to the United States around 1976-77. It's me. I'm the oldest daughter, which puts a lot of roles on me culturally on the Korean side. And then I have two younger brothers um, that are respect five and nine years younger than I am. And so my dad joined the Air Force as kind of his measure of integrating into the world as an African-American man from Richmond, Virginia. Um, He went and did some college after high school and then decided the Air Force was where he wanted to be. But I I was born at Beale Air Force Base in Yuba City, California. From there, we went to Colorado Springs. My dad did a small tour there, I want to say like 18 months, and I was still kind of a a little taut. And then by three, we went to Holland and lived in a city called Schusterberg for about three years. And then we came back to Sacramento, California, which is still Northern California, much like where I was born and where I claim my roots and, and home to be. And I lived there all the way until I was 15 years old. Um, and then my dad's civil service job relocated him to Arizona. And then that's how I finished high school here in Arizona. So that's kind of my timeline. And then I met my husband in high school. Um, when we were 15, we are both transplants from California. He was from LA and we just clung to each other. Um, This was in the late 90s in Arizona. There were not a lot of people of color here yet. And we saw each other in the hallway and it was like our eyes locked. And then I knew like in an instance, I'm like, I'm gonna make him my boyfriend. (laughs) And I did. And then uh, we got pregnant our last year, at the end of our last year in high school, our senior year. And that's kind of what changed my pathway as an adolescent, thinking I was going to go to college, I was actually now going to become a mom. And in my family, the message was, if you didn't go to college, you weren't really worth much and that you'd have to enter the workforce. Um, and so my family was very disappointed because they had high hopes of me being the first generation college grad. I was, you know, I had the grades, I could go to college, but Honestly, my family didn't really have the money or means or actually understand the process of applying or what financial aid meant. And so I think almost when I became pregnant with, it was a tragedy, but 
a relief all in the same breath, I think, for my entire family, which kind of put some messages on me right away that, you know, I was definitely on my own. I felt my parents' struggles at that moment. I really understand how taxed they were as a family. Um, and so I kind of decided to walk away from them and, and figure out life on my own with my then boyfriend, now husband. And then our first year, I'll tell you, was it was a disaster. Our first apartment, we were evicted. Uh, we went to go live with the in-laws. Of course, personalities, you know, clash. And so that gets uncomfortable. And so I, I was the mature one, right? I'm the, uh, the girl. Girls always mature a little bit faster. And also, I'm the mom. So I've really got to get activated. Whereas my husband, God bless his heart now, back then wasn't so committed and was still kind of running around and, and being a guy's guy and so I didn't have a lot of means to anything and I at this point now I'm just reaching I'm in desperation and a girlfriend of mine one of my best friends that I went to high school with who was a year younger than me and was getting ready to plan her graduation decided on joining the Marine Corps and she invited me to come with her to learn about it because she thought maybe we could go together to boot camp and start a new journey and give a new life to my daughter and of course I went and then the rest is history And so one of the questions that immediately comes to my mind is what entices a young girl in her teenage years to enlist in the Marines? Yeah, so the Marine Corps does things very uh, effectively on the recruitment side. So when you go in there and sit down, you know, of course me, I, I'm a, I have trauma already. You know, I'm a teenage mom. I, I don't know where my life's going. I've been evicted already once. I, you know, I have poor credit. Like my life is in shambles. Everything he's saying sounds awesome. He hands you like these cards, these little hard little, they call them benefit tags. And what you do is pick five or six of them that really appeal to you. And then they use psychology to hone in how the Marine Corps can give you all those, all those things based on the tile you picked. When Joanna told me about this recruiting practice, it sparked my curiosity. As many of the listeners know, I did my graduate work in the psychology, specifically focusing on organizational psych and the psychology of leadership. And this seemed like an interesting practice. So to find out a little bit more, I just Googled benefits tags, Marine Corps recruitment, and a number of search results popped up describing the practice. But what I found was that there's apparently, uh, this is a common practice in the recruiting process for the Marine Corps. And uh, to help identify a recruit's motivation, there are a total of 11 cards or tags that are uh, presented to the recruit, including things like pride of belonging, courage, poise, self-esteem, challenge, leadership, self-reliance, fitness, financial security and advancement, education, technical skills, travel, and adventure. And the recruit then, as Joanna described, will pick the ones that most closely describe 
their motivation in life. So of course I picked financial stability. Well, in the Marine Corps, you know, you get paid every 1st and the 15th. It's guaranteed. And if you do what you're supposed to do, you'll always get promoted right on track. And so you'll never be without. And then also they tell you about the stability, you know, duty stations, base housing, the connections, child care, you know, family readiness. They really talk about this community that's so exciting. And then the other tile I picked was travel and adventure. And they're like, oh my God, you're going to join the military. Of course you're going to travel. You have these great adventures. And then they tell you about all the great places they've been. You know, they don't talk about the crazy places they've been. And so you're still enamored because you're young and you're not that smart. You're just pretty naive. And then physical fitness, of course. Um, I had always been a high school athlete, so I just wanted to be strong again. And so it really, I picked everything that I felt was missing from my life. And in that same breath, the Marine Corps promised that they could give it to me. And here's another interesting bit about Joanna's story. So the year is 1997 and Joanna is a single mom. But in order for her to enlist, one of two things would have to happen. A or one, she would either have to give up all her rights to her daughter, basically put her out for adoption, or she would have to marry her then boyfriend who could then in essence consent or give permission for her to enlist. And so I made the commitment and then the recruiter said, well, because you have a kid, there's only two ways you can join. And those two ways are I either give my daughter up for adoption or because I am a high profile female that the Marine Corps is looking to add to the ranks, I could get married and apply for a two dependent waiver. And I said, well, we weren't planning on getting married anytime soon. I don't know how he's going to feel about it. And that's really hard to ask for. And I'm not going to give away the rights to my child. So I get uh, the two dependent waiver because I'm an alpha female with all the, I meet and exceed all the physical requirements. And I'm willing to ship immediately. So they're super excited. So guess what the recruiter offered? I'll pay for you guys to get married at the courthouse. Just bring your boyfriend here and I'll sell him too. And that, that's what I did. I went and got my boyfriend and said, oh my God, we can get out of Arizona. We could have a better life. And all he was interested in was the get out of Arizona part. And so he was excited but he was like, marriage, I don't know if we're ready for that. And I'm like, I don't know if we are either, but it's our ticket out of here. And this guy's willing to pay for it. So let's just go hear him out. And so I took Job in and he went and learned. And the guy kind of did the benefit tags on him too, even though he knew he couldn't enlist him because I was already filling his female slot. And both of us couldn't go under this premise. So... He did a really good job. My husband or boyfriend agreed and we got married the next month. And then uh, we got married on September 19th, 1997. And I enlisted in the Marine Corps on September 20th, 1997. When I think of the Marine Corps, immediately the tagline, the few, the proud, the brave, 
comes to my civilian mind and I have this vision of an incredibly elite group of people who are disciplined, full of honor and tough. But I also can't help to remember some of the scandals that have hit in recent years, most notably the nude picture scandal where images of over 150,000 women was shared, many of whom were female Marines themselves. The Marine Corps Times ran a story on May 24th of this year outlining some of the changes and processes that have been put in place to prevent another scandal like that from occurring again and potentially to institute a culture shift. It is also not uncommon to run into stories like that of Captain Janine Garner. NPR ran an article in April of this year highlighting her story under the title Female Marines Tackle What They Call a Core's Culture of Sexism. Obviously, there are tremendous opportunities to address this issue within the Marines. You know, and just looking at some of the numbers, out of all of the branches of the military, the Marine Corps has the fewest number of women at just 6.8%, meaning it's the least gender integrated and it is heavily male-dominated culture. So I asked Joanna about some of her experiences and in particular about her transition from a civilian as a young female recruit into the heavily male-dominated culture of the Marine Corps. Oh, it was a mess. I mean, just just think about it. <laughs> just stick a girl in a cafeteria full of men. Would you do it? I, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's nuts. It's, it really is unreal. I never got the dream that the recruiter sold me. We could we could probably run a whole nother podcast on just all the hiccups of me entering into the service, the things that I were promised that didn't manifest, how much longer I was separated from my family, even after boot camp and the initial education training, not getting paid for having a family. I mean, the first four years was an absolute disaster for me. Um, but in my fourth year, I came into my zone, right? And that's when I really loved being a Marine. I was really starting to own it. Uh, my husband had become a whole different person. We now had three children. It was early 2001. And I said, I, you know what? I'm reenlisting. I don't, I don't have to make this decision until 2002. But if I do it this year, I get a bonus. So I said, I'm going to go ahead and re-enlist. I did it out in the desert in 29 Palms. We were at a combined arms exercise. It was one of my proudest moments um, in my life after my marriage and children and even joining was to, to re-enlist and really honor and, and make my commitment go further. Um, and then two months later, 9-11 happened. So what had changed between your first and your fourth year? What allowed you to have such a positive experience during your fourth year when you were re-enlisting? I, I finally thought that I had it figured out. You know, I went through the growing pains when we finally came back to stateside um, and I was stationed in San Diego with my husband and, and I got pregnant again. I kind of got the stink eye from a lot of my command, like, oh, it's just another woman in the Corps getting pregnant, having babies, wasting up time. And, you know, so I got all those kind of negative messages. I got a lot of sexism. I got a lot of inappropriate sexual harassment. 
Um, I've actually um, been raped in the service twice. Um, but I'm, I'm a very resilient, strong person. And so I always was somebody who could keep moving forward. And when I, I figured out my own internal strengths and what I was able to accomplish and that I was actually good at the things that I did in the core, I knew that it was up to me to just continue to grow and be better and maybe hopefully, you know, cha change the system one day. Were you able to get help for the sexual assault? No, not at all. I, the first time I was raped, I was in communication school in 29 Palms and, um, a fellow student waited until I got drunk and passed out and then had his way with me. And at that time, um, based on all the messages that we received in all of our training environments, as it relates to the negative connotations around women serving, I already understood at age 1920 at that time to shut the F up and just keep moving. And that's what I did. What I think about is how does a person like you, you know, go through everything that you've gone through, but yet still you come out on the other side strong with a smile on your face. Clearly you're, you've had your heart broken, you've had your body violated, you've had your spirit violated, and that carries certain things with it. But nonetheless, you still stand, right? You're still standing, Joanna. Like, that's amazing. I don't know. I mean, I was raised by a pretty phenomenal father, and I think a lot of my resolve and resilience and able to keep putting one foot in front of the other no matter what comes from him for sure. Um, and then additionally was that I was never, I just kept fighting for my family. I just wanted to be right or do something right or make it work or, or, or make it get better. Considering everything that's happened, would you, if you could go back in time, would you re-enlist as an 18-year-old? Absolutely. Because through every negative part of my narrative, there is a victory and a resurrection of a new me. And it's, it's what shapes my life. It's what put me on my pathway. If I negate that, then I may negate my marriage. If I negate that, I may negate the other two children that I've had. So I have a real hard trouble with regret. What I, what I wish for was that I was better educated or that I was better prepared, or that my family culturally were more open in overall discussions about life and happiness that would have made me a stronger individual when I was younger. But all of these hiccups and all of these trials and these tragedies are the only things that could lead me to my triumphs. So I love this piece of the interview. I can marinate on these words for a while. Through every negative part of my history, there is a resurrection anew of me. This is why Joanna is able to transform over and over again, each version of her stronger and more beautiful than the one before. So Joanna, when you transitioned back into civilian life um, after you left the Marine Corps, 
What got you into advocacy work? I mean, you likely could have had any number of jobs or didn't done any number of different things. What specifically about advocacy um, called your attention? Well, I won't say I didn't have options because I'm sure I did, but I didn't believe that I had that many options when I left the service. Most people that leave the service, they either go into a similar field that they were pursuing while they were in the military or they go into law enforcement or they go, you know, into administrative roles of some sort or the court system or governments. There's not a lot of, I would say, dreaming per se projected while you're in the Marine Corps. And so when I got out, I was smart, you know, I knew, okay, I had a 10 year career. I wasn't a young spring chicken still. And I had a family, so I had some resemblance of understanding that I needed to be responsible, that I needed to have a plan, and my exit was unexpected. I knew I was going through a medical discharge process, so I had some time to plan. In my mind, I was like, who is Joanna out there? I was supposed to retire and keep being Marine Joanna. And I couldn't find, I couldn't understand who, who I could be. I didn't even dream for myself because everybody kind of beat the dreams out of me. And so I just took a job at the courthouse in the city of Chandler, you know, state job basically, um, and got there and was miserable because it was a woman-dominated profession, which I had just came from a male-dominated profession. So you can imagine I was completely displaced. Um, My personality was much more rigid, cold, and hard. I wasn't evil or mean, but it was just the the demeanor that the Marine Corps had manifested in me. And I just didn't fit in. And so I I lasted there probably six months. And and there were great relationships that I made there, but it, it was just too difficult. I wasn't ready. And it was, I went from one extreme to a whole nother extreme. So then I went to college to use my GI Bill based on the advice of somebody at the courthouse. And it was a judge who had previously served in the Navy. And he he gave me some hard-hitting advice and said, look, sister, you need some decompression. He's like, maybe you need to hang out with some hippies. So he's like, go to college. And that's what I did. And then the economy tanked. And then I was lost again in 2010. And I said, well, I'm going to grab myself by the bootstraps. And I walked across the street to the grocery store from my neighborhood where I knew the store manager was an army veteran. And I said, Jamie, I need a job like today, like now, or I'm going to lose my, I'm going to lose everything. And he gave me a job in the meat department and I excelled. I did well. I loved it because I was, you know, being exposed to my community. I was um, working hard. I was being laborious working, which is something that I missed from the core. And my body was getting stronger. I had a purpose. And so it brought back a lot of memories for me. And it was great. And I, there wasn't a day I didn't love it. And I had an early schedule until the day that they decided that I was management material. So then they said, well, you know, you got to be a manager. You got to get trained in meat cutting and you got to become an actual legit butcher. So I was like, all right, I'll do it. Um, And so I started the training and it was fine. Everything worked out. And and one Sunday when I wasn't training and I was confident in in cutting, 
um, I I was off. I don't know. I had a, I had a pretty nubby piece of London broil meat that we were slicing up. And the gloves that they provided me that are these chain link safety gloves were not the appropriate size for a woman's hands. And of course, uh, with the nubby piece of meat, it just grabbed it and then sucked my hand inward and basically gutted out my, my knuckle from my right hand thumb. And then that ended that career. And so I, I was literally crippled. You know, I had to have four surgery, four reconstructive surgeries to save my hand. Not only that, I was cutting, you know, animal meat and I cut into the bone all the way through. And so all that got into my bone and I had serious bone infection, which required, um, I forget the name of the antibiotic, but it's the strongest in the world. And I had to get it pumped into me three times a day through a pick line for about 60 days. And so during those that time that I was healing, it became very apparent to me that maybe I didn't get this transition right. <laughs> so I started thinking and I started reaching out to anybody I knew. And it's just like, I can't keep doing this. I survived Iraq and now I'm going to lose my hand in an electric bandsaw. No, thank you. Um, and then I learned about what ASU was doing for veterans by creating the Pat Tillman Veterans Center, which didn't exist while I was a transitioning returning student at ASU. So immediately I had this innate connection to the job and it became very real that this job was, re was created for me. And I had a shift in thinking. The minute I saw the job posting, like, that's my job. I can do all those things and I have to be the one to do those things because I already came there and tried it on my own and wasn't successful. So now I need to come in and help people be successful. And then I got the job and it just worked out. And that's kind of where I started my, my advocacy life. Joanna's efforts are now fully concentrated on promoting veterans' causes and furthering veterans' issues. She is the Chief Operating Officer for the Veterans Directory based out of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, the Directory is an online platform for our Arizona veterans to be able to get connected online without having to self-disclose or talk to a case manager and they could basically kind of access the synergy of Arizona and what's going on in the veteran community. So if you log on to the veteransdirectory.org, you're welcomed with a carousel feature and we highlight uh, another nonprofit in the community which is called 211 or BCC and that's what veterans have a hotline number that they can call directly in the state of Arizona to get access to support, mentorship, services, you name it. And so how do you build that awareness when there's so many people in the world and not everybody knows everything? So having the online platform allows it to be more easily found. And then we put a, a robust calendar on there that tells veterans what's going on in the community, how they can get engaged. We cater information for them so they know how to navigate systems a little bit easier. And then pretty soon here, we're really gonna launch an initiative where we go out 
and really tell the story and the testimony of the veteran experience in Arizona to all of our local and small business community and share with them ways that they can donate locally through various organizations and have a direct impact on their veteran population living amongst them. So again, it serves as a way as an invitation for the veteran community to log in, but also the greater public can log in and see what's going on or how they can further their interest or help in a veteran or take it beyond just thanking a veteran and really create a, a bridge in the divide of those two communities and bring them together because veterans need the civilians and civilians need veterans because we're amazing and we can help them do even more greater work in the community now. It's interesting to hear you talk about um, human connectivity and establishing connections because it sounds like you're doing more than just connecting veterans with veterans, but you're also establishing relationships and facilitating a bridge between the veteran community and the civilian community, including the business community. Um, So in a way, you're establishing connections that can help these veterans as they're coming back to transition into their civilian lives. Exactly. And because it's my job to really understand what's going on in the community, I'm aware of so many different programs that exist. So I kind of call myself a connoisseur of veteran activity. And so through that, through those connections now, um, you know, I have my day job and I, I love what I do and it's in the interest of veterans. And then additionally, I found out about another organization called Four Block, which um, creates career readiness curriculum for veterans and engages them and really educates them on understanding their value, who they are and what and how they want to contribute and hone all that in for them and then help triangulate their job search, teach them how to network. I coach them on their professional skills. And then I do some light life coaching. I help them get their finances in order through various partners that we bring to the table. And so it's kind of a whole round table community effect that we have uh, with our transitioning population. And so far, since we've been around the last year, it's, it's working. It's amazing. I'm seeing more veterans who thought that they were in turmoil really take the shift and now they're helping me create even bigger strides and gains in what we're trying to do in this community. As a veteran yourself and now as a professional who is advocating for veterans' causes, what advice do you have for civilians, regular everyday people who want to help out and also help to promote some of the veterans' causes? Do you have any advice? Absolutely. There are many ways that you can help the veteran community. And uh, there's a lot of great programs out there. My thing is focusing on organizations that are local to your city or state that you know are having a specific impact to the veteran population that surrounds you. And most of our transitioning population what they really need beyond everything else, because there's a pathway to employment, there's a pathway to education, but what they really need is a connection, they need mentorship, and they need a network um, where they can feel safe 
And so I would just say to reach out to organizations that you know receive transitioning veterans or know that transitioning veterans use their services and offer yourself as an advice giver, a community um, impact person. If you own a company and you have the ability to train or give veterans opportunity, um, I would encourage you to do that as well. We're putting together a lot of um, employ employment toolkit services. And so if you think that you can help in that arena, um, you can definitely contact me um, as soon as possible. But basically, it's opportunity. We don't want a handout. And really, you shouldn't be giving out too many handouts because that doesn't help a person. What we want to see are hand up. So like I said, if you can give a vet a job, if you know somebody that can give a vet some training, or if you want to help fund a scholarship that gets them a certification that the GI Bill won't pay for, but will lead that veteran to take the skills from its military career and maximize it on the civilian side, like in the IT community, then do that. Or if you know you have expertise, offer advice to a veteran that's planning to get on that same pathway. And then think about veterans beyond the military. They don't all want to go into law enforcement. They don't all want to be civic government or um, um, service industry, like, you know, with um, truckers and stuff. A, a lot of them aim to be in the corporate world. A lot of them aim to be in, uh, to run nonprofits. A lot of them aim to do community service. They want to be social workers. And so they, they need to find other people in those different job fields and catalog them so veterans can find them and get access to, to better knowledge faster. So I would just say taking the time to, when you meet a veteran and just asking him or her, hey, what are you trying to do with your life now and how can I help you get there? Joanna, what makes you happy? What gives you satisfaction? I It's, it's connectivity, it's collaboration, it's synergy. I probably suffocate my husband and my children because I just want to touch them and hug them all the time. But I I have to have people around me. I cannot be isolated. I want to be in action all the time. I want to have a mission. And I want to impart something on someone that makes them a better person. That's what makes me ultimately as happy as I can be. I don't search for my own happiness because the happiness is what reflects to me from what I give. And so essentially I'm, I'm very happy. Um, I used to be really sad and put on a front of happiness. Um, but I'm, I'm finding how to be happy and really it has nothing to do with me or resources or, or material items. Well, it sounds like you found the sweet spot for you both personally and professionally. I hope so. I just, I, it's a lot of work. There's still a lot of work to be done and I have the energy. I'm excited. Um, and specifically, I, I hope to expand my efforts this year um, in activating a lot of women in the community, women veterans, as well as civilian women, much like you yourself, as beautiful as you are, to get activated, to bring all of the women together and say, hey, let's, 
let's make the change that we want to see and let's create some new synergy. So that's kind of a new thing that I'm adding on to my plate. <laughs> and so hopefully um, that, that will help serve even more change in the veteran community, especially if I can reach out and find all these women who haven't been coming out and haven't been activated because of all the negative experiences they have. I want to go find those ladies, bring them out, celebrate them, build them up, and put them out in the world as new gifts to give. Joanna, how have your experiences, especially some of the advocacy work that you do now, shaped you or impacted who you are? It just has made me a more compassionate person. I I have way more empathy for people. I really recognize the ill values that were given to me about what it means to survive because, you know, the, the messages out there is the strong is the strong and the weak is the weak. And to me, that's just really sad because we're, we're here to support each other. And the military that I know, um, the leadership that was when I was in was like, we're not going to change for you. We're not going to evolve. We're not going to, you know, go with the times. We're just going to dig our heels in the sand and do the same thing over and over again. And if you don't like it, oh, well. And then I feel like those same messages exist in the civilian world, too. It's like get in where you fit in. If they're not one of us, you're one of them. And we don't have a lot of reach back. Even in our communities, people have to fight tooth and nail to get out of them, to reach a level of success. And then they're exhausted. Like my dad said growing up, my job is to give you all the resources so that your life can be improved at least 25% better than mine, right? That was his commitment. I, I gotta get you somewhere where you do better than me. That's how all of our parents are, right? Whose parents say, you know what, kid? I don't want you to be nothing in life. You're, they don't do that. You know, parents that come from love. But we do that to people in society every day. We look at our neighbor and we shit on them. We talk about them. If somebody cuts us off, we're mad at that person. That person doesn't know you. And so, why are we getting so wrapped up in the negativity? We need to think about what can I be or what kind of example can I set that touches, inspires somebody to do something more with their life while also keeping an open hand to them and sharing your life with them so they can have the visual. But instead, we wag our finger in front of people's faces and then just tell them what to do. And that doesn't work. And so I know that's already existing in my veteran community. So when they get to me, the first thing I tell them is that they have something inside of them that was given to them that they have to give to the world. And they knew what that was at one point in time in their life, whether they were a little small child or they were in their adolescence or they used to daydream while they were on a deployment, there's something in there that is in their heart's desire. If they had no limitations, no judgment, what would it be? And when I say that to people, they almost cry 
because they're like, no, nobody asks me that. Everybody just says, what's your plan? What's your track? What job do you need? Nobody asks me about my happiness. What will fulfill me? What is my passion or how can I can contribute to this world? If we start asking people that and we start predicating our message with positivity, oh my God, imagine the world that we could be faced. It would be a mirror of positivity. All right, my friends. So we are at the end of the interview and I'm going to close out by asking you the same question I ask every guest. What are your three most favorite qualities about yourself? Okay. Well, right now, I would say number one is my resilience. That has kept me intact. Um, Second is my hair because I, I mean, we, I told you this when we first met, um, Coming from Asian culture and African-American culture, hair has so many layers. And I carried thick, beautiful, long, wavy hair my whole life. Most of the time, I I went through stages. I've had short hair here and there, um, but I still was very tight. It was was a tragedy anytime I had short hair. And so um, I always had long hair, which was a mess. You know, I always had to put it up in the Marine Corps. It was heavy. It's super thick, coarse hair. And I had headaches, neck pain, I had pre-arthritis in my neck. And when I finally came into my own, into my own confidence and my own flesh um, and started appreciating myself, the first thing I let go was, was my hair. And the style I created, I think, very much is what helps the real Joanna come to the forefront and be that person who honors the story I have to tell. And then the third would be my ability to listen and understand what someone needs, even if they can't say it. Joanna, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I am grateful that this podcast connected me to you, and I am so inspired by you. And I agree with you. You're 100% right. Your strength and resilience, your gorgeous hair, your super savvy, fun hairstyle, and your overall empathy and understanding are immediately visible. But there's even more to you. You are an ever-evolving butterfly, continuously shifting and morphing. And may your wings continue to take you far and wide in each transformation in your life from one chapter to the next may it bring you more beauty and fulfillment than the one before. 